Hello, Cornellians. Thank you for joining us on the Fresh from the Hill podcast. I'm your guest host, Andrew Brady, class of 2010, and I'm excited to be here today with Megan Frank, class of 2011, and actually a double Cornellian, also MPS 2016. Thanks so much for joining us today, Megan. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. So Megan is the fourth generation of her family to manage Dr. Constantine Frank Winery in the Finger Lakes. She holds a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and two postgraduate degrees. One in wine business from the University of Adelaide, Australia, and one in enology from Cornell University. Megan has earned her Wine Spirit Education Trust Level 4 Diploma in Wine and Spirits and Champagne Master Level from the Wine Scholar Guild. That must have been really, uh, really tough, but hopefully a little bit of fun along the way. She is a certified wine educator and a certified wine judge through the American Wine Society. Since joining the winery in 2013, Megan has added unique visitor experiences and created a super premium line of wines, paying tribute to the women of the Frank family. Excellent. So a lot to go on there. Uh, you know, I think first, I just love to hear many have probably heard of the name. Some have maybe even been there, whether they're they're current students or young alumni. But but tell us a little bit about the history. Uh, you know, one of the most historical wineries probably in the region. Absolutely, Andrew, yes. So uh, the winery was started in 1962 by my great-grandfather, Constantine Frank, and he was actually um, an immigrant. He came from Ukraine. So he was fleeing World War II with his wife and three children and ended up coming to New York at the age of 52 years old. Um, didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> but he spoke many other languages. So that helped him along the way and basically had to start a whole new life. So um, in Eastern Europe, he was a viticulturalist. So basically studied plants and grapevines uh, and managed a very large vineyard there. He was a professor uh, and really devoted his life to research, to grape and wine research. So when he came here to New York, you know, he came originally into New York City and then eventually upstate to the Finger Lakes because there was a booming wine industry here. Uh, and this is, you know, post-prohibition, pre-prohibition, the Finger Lakes was absolutely enormous in terms of grape production. Um, and the, the wines that were being produced were from the American varieties, so Concord, Catawba, Niagara, you know, things we more associate with jams and jellies today. And Constantine looked around and he said, where's the Chardonnay? You know, where's the Riesling? Where's the Pinot Noir? And um, researchers uh, told him it was too cold in the Finger Lakes to plant the European varieties, otherwise known as vinifera. And he basically went out to prove everybody wrong. And that's exactly what he did. So uh, the secret to, to his success was he grafted uh, hardy American rootstock, which is naturally resistant to this pest that we have here in North America called phylloxera. Uh, so that was really the key. It wasn't due to the cold climate, but really due to this tiny microscopic bug that eats away at the roots of the vine. And he kind of, through his research and experimentation, knew about this pest and, um, you know, developed uh, or uh, kind of instituted a completely natural method to avoiding this pest. Uh, so he started our winery in 1957. He purchased the land, began planting, and um, basically began his own experiment station on the property. So he had over 60 different grape varieties planted. Today we work with about 17, which seems still like a lot. <laughs> um, and my grandfather took over in the 80s. He started a sparkling winery, which is actually where I'm sitting today. 
Uh, so we still produce traditional method sparkling wines in the same way as if you uh, would in, in Champagne, France. We just don't call them Champagne because we're we're in the Finger Lakes. <laughs> so we, we do Method Champenois uh, Finger Lake sparkling wine. Uh, and then my father, who's a Cornell grad as well, class of 79, um, he took over the winery in 1993 and started a second label called Salmon Run, which makes up about half of our production today. So, and he's really helped the winery grow uh, tremendously in the past, you know, 30 years since he's since he's been involved. So, yeah, so it's been it's been great to be, you know, part of the winery, part of the family business, and um, yeah, I'm excited. So uh, I, I come from a family business uh, and, and I, I always joke that, you know, family businesses, they, they, they don't pay attention to child labor laws. So what did, what did growing up, uh, you know, in the business look like for you? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I actually ran the other way for most of my life. Uh, it really wasn't until I got to Cornell that I developed a passion um, for wine. So it's kind of ironic, you know, growing up and just not being interested at all. Um, but I think I had to see it through another lens to really appreciate it. Um, so I did work, you know, here and there, you know, in various jobs, you know, we would go out and pick, you know, grapes with my dad for maturity samples. And that was always fun. And I would always eat, you know, way more than I would help him pick. So uh, it, it was a great experience to be around it, but I didn't really fully appreciate it at, at a younger age. It took, it took some time. Yeah, it's interesting now, because as, as you're giving like that history, it was actually reminding me of, of the wines class. You're jogging my memory of, you know, the vinifera and all those sorts of things. Um, so did you even bother taking the wines class or were you already a pro by that point? No, no, absolutely. I, I loved the wines class. Um, did you take it with Stephen Mikowski? I think it was Yeah, yep. Yeah, he's a legend. Uh, and now it's taught by Cheryl Stanley, who's phenomenal as well. Um, but yeah, I did take it. It was one of my favorite classes. And, and to be honest, you know, I took a lot of uh, wine classes in cows as well. But the wines class was like really what solidified it for me. I was like, this is so neat. You know, there's all over the world, there are these, you know, amazing wines and regions and people doing really interesting things. So um, yeah, I, I would say the wines class was very instrumental uh, in my career path, which is kind of funny, but yeah, it was a great, great time. What about, uh, what about the rest of your time on the Hill? Was there anything that, that jumps out in terms of kind of whether memories or a favorite professor or other classes, things like that? Yeah, I absolutely loved my time at Cornell. It was just a really wonderful experience, you know, from start to finish. Um, and I grew up, you know, about an hour from Cornell and my, you know, with my dad going there, I always knew about Cornell and knew that it was a very special place just from stories that I heard. Um, but it wasn't until I attended a hockey game when I was in high school that I was like, I have to come here. This is such an interesting, beautiful place. And the, the passion of the students was like electric. It was just great. So I applied early decision and, um, and just kind of really fell in love with it. So my freshman year, I um, dabbled in a lot of different clubs and activities and just tried to, you know, really explore a lot of interests. And, one of my favorite things that I did was uh, freshman year, I attended one of those club, you know, the club fairs. I think it's sure. like an orientation week. 
And uh, I saw this uh, booth for the mascot club. And I was like, that is really interesting. I've never, I didn't even know, you know, there was a mascot club, but you know, in high school I was in all of the marching bands and pep band and all of that. So I thought, well, maybe I could check this out. So I tried out and uh, there's a, a handful of mascots and you have to do a tryout and it's on um, Pole Plaza. So you have to put on the suit and walk around and they kind of score you for your personality and your energy and, and all that. And I'll never forget the person before me who tried out, uh, they decided, cause you're supposed to interact um, with students. So they decided to, to grab uh, a drink that the one student was holding and it, it turned out to be like a blue soda or something. And uh, they tried to pretend to drink from <laughs> from the you know from the cup, and it ended up spilling all the way into the bear suit. Oh, and it was, and of course, I was after that. So it was like so sticky and gross. And uh, that that you know person that went before me unfortunately didn't make the <laughs> mascot club, but uh, it was a great experience. And uh, I had a lot of friends in various sports that we could also choose um, to support like the women's basketball team or the women's hockey team or soccer team. So I really just enjoyed, you know, being there and, and uh, hyping up the crowd. That was a really great, great memory. Yeah, well, we had a, we had quite a bit of overlap in our time uh, at Cornell, so I, I probably saw you at some of those games and didn't even know it. Yes, absolutely. The worst was when, uh, like during homecoming games, when students would try to pick up the mascot, and it's very disorienting. You know, you just you can't really see as it is, and then when you're picked up, uh, it's not fun. So <laughs> maybe you saw me like flailing around, being picked up, and <laughs> trying to get out. But That's yeah. It was I don't know. I'm I'm a little I'm a little uh, jealous. I feel like even just doing the tryout, even just to put the the mask in in the in the whole costume on would have been something. Yeah, it was great, and it's very smelly in there, honestly. So I uh, that was the only negative. But of course, it, it, there has to be, you know, something because <laughs> it, it's it's very warm. So yeah, not not always pleasant, but a great time. It, I wonder, is there anything looking back again, probably uh, some, at least some listeners are, are still current students and we're probably both jealous of them because the only thing I would do differently would probably be try to figure out like you how to, how to go back or stay longer because there's so many opportunities and clubs and things, but is there anything that you uh, would have done differently or clubs you wish you would have joined or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. Yeah, I um, I'm pretty happy with what you know what I ended up doing. I also um, became an ears counselor, which was really a really wonderful experience. Uh, and and that training I still use today in really empathy focused you know conversations. And it really taught me a lot of lessons on how to listen and how to be very um, thoughtful of, you know, what other people are going through in their lives. So that was a really great experience as well. Um, but honestly, I kind of wish I took more gym classes, like the massage class. There's like, I did take whitewater kayaking, which was really fun. Um, and I was on the crew team for a little while. So that counted towards the gym. But you know, there was like salsa dancing, there was I don't even remember just so many fun gym classes and I wish I had taken more so that would be my my piece of advice for current students 
That's a good one. <laughs> that is actually one thing that I did take full advantage of. I took boxing and I took, you know, hockey, got to skate online then and everything. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's just so many opportunities and, uh, and yeah, I'll have to have to figure out if I can go back for another degree or something. Lots of fun. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, cause you talked, you know, kind of in the early years, not really being other than other than picking and eating some berries along the way, not really being in, interested in the com uh, company and the family business, maybe the wines class opening your eyes a little bit. At what point did you, did you really feel like, okay, this is my future? Yeah, that's a good question. So I honestly, it was um, during the wines class, I just really got interested in wines of the world. And I finally had turned 21. So I took the, the class when I was a senior. So um, that was great because I could go finally to liquor stores and restaurants and order wine. And uh, sometimes I would go home, you know, to my parents' house and I would take different wines that we had just learned about in class. And I saw my dad just get so excited that I was excited. And then I became even more excited. So it was this kind of, you know, loop. Um, and it was, he, he was the one that actually suggested that I should move away for a while, you know, get a graduate degree. And that's when um, I decided to, to go to University of Adelaide in Australia. Um, so that was really what solidified it for me was my time uh, abroad that really helped kind of secure the idea of, okay, I definitely wanna be in the wine industry. This is, this is just too great to pass up. Uh, and it was a great experience, a great two years living there. Uh, and in Adelaide, you're surrounded by different wine regions. So it was, the school was wonderful, um, but it was also the connections that I made throughout the industry. And uh, a lot of the students were from multi-generational family wineries, which was a really great connection. And still, you know, people that I keep in touch with today to ask, you know, how did you handle this? You know, what are you guys up to facing the, you know, COVID pandemic, <laughs> you know, things like that. It's been a great support system. Yeah, that's really neat. I, I, I found that to be both for myself and, and others I know in family businesses kind of going off and getting some outside experience, you know, expanding your horizon so that you can then come and, and bring back something new or some different perspective. So it's interesting that that was kind of part of your story as well. Uh, but then you did come back to, uh, to Cornell. So what was, what was the, uh, the, the spirit or the, the motivation for that, that second Cornell degree? Yeah, um, you know, I just really knew that I needed an analogy degree, a winemaking degree. And it's something that, you know, in Australia it was a wine business degree, which was great. Uh, so it was, it was basically framed as an MBA, but just really solely focused in the wine industry. So, you know, we took some uh, viticulture and analogy classes, but it was really based in like finance, you know, retail and distribution management, um, you know, business plans, things like that, which has been very helpful as well. But, you know, I figured in order for anyone to take me seriously, I probably need this. So uh, I commuted, you know, back and forth uh, from Hammondsport, which is, it's not too bad. It's about an hour each way and not the same experience as my undergrad where, you know, you're living there and it was really, really fun. Um, but I'm really glad I did that as well. And I had some really fantastic professors, um, you know, people that I can call if we have an issue or if I'm not sure what to do. 
Uh, and it really is a kind of supporting role in the winemaking team. So we do also have enologists and trained winemakers here, but for me, it was important to have that kind of credibility, I think, uh, to kind of take us, you know, uh, in, a, in a new direction and also, you know, understand the different pieces of equipment, you know, being able to step in and uh, really participate fully in harvest and the different winemaking operations. So I am really happy I did it. Uh, it was a very challenging time, you know, uh, working and then also, um, you know, going back and forth, but it's, it, it was a great experience looking back. Yeah. And, and gosh, what a, what a broad, I mean, from the, you have to know obviously how to, how to, how to run the business, but you got to, got to figure out how to make the wine. I'm sure there, there's other, there's other people that are, that are serving some of those roles, but being able to have that experience, but you know, maybe, I don't know, even though it wasn't a Cornell degree, um, one of your, one of your most exciting uh, certifications might, may, may, in my opinion, anyways, may have been that, that spirit education test. So tell us, what is it like training for something like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a really big fan of, uh, it's called the Wine Spirit Education Trust. So it's a UK-based wine program, um, and it's similar, but actually quite different to the SOM program. You know, the SOM program has gotten a lot of um, kind of headlines in, in news and also movies. Uh, WSCT, or Wine Spirit Education Trust, is similar, but it takes into account winemaking, um, grape growing, and also quality. Um, whereas some, you know, it's it's focused for really professionals in the wine industry who are maybe more restaurant based. So WCT has more of that kind of business focus, which I really liked. So uh, I think that was really great to kind of round out some, you know, um, some knowledge. And it's really looking at important wine regions of the world and, uh, yeah, the the level four, which I finished a few years ago, is about two years. So it's it's definitely a time commitment, but uh, the tasting, you know, really important to taste from different regions and really be able to discern differences and similarities, and then explain those. Um, but yeah, it was phenomenal. And actually, now I'm I teach uh, level three. Um, we teach in uh, Canandaigua at the New York Kitchen with another instructor. So that's been really rewarding and great for me to keep up my knowledge because it's uh, kind of in one ear out the other sometimes for me. So I have to, I have to keep, you know, refreshing myself. But uh, a big takeaway, I think it's important, you know, to always look outside our region and see, you know, what are other regions doing successfully? Uh, what are some ideas we can bring back? And Honestly, traveling has been a really great thing for me uh, to just see, you know, what is everyone else doing and, and how can we do things better? So, yeah, it's uh, definitely a very fun industry to be in. <laughs> wow. Yeah, maybe I'll have to, the, the Canandaigua New York kitchen is about halfway yeah. in between you and, and me in Rochester. So uh, maybe I'll have to, maybe I'll have to go sometime. What, what do you think are Maybe some of the, um, I don't know, as an educator and trying to, trying to build passion for people, what do you think are some of the misconceptions that you hear from, from people that are just getting into it? Yeah, I would say, you know, the wine industry, unfortunately, has this reputation of being um, kind of pretentious, 
which it really shouldn't be. You know, wine is a beverage. It's meant to, you know, bring joy and, and pleasure. And, you know, that's, I think, should be the focus. And we have this language around wine that's so difficult for newcomers to kind of enter into, uh, you know, words that don't make sense in any other context. Uh, like fruit forward, you know, minerality, <laughs> things like, like, you know, it's, it's difficult. And I do catch myself often, you know, speaking in this jargon, that's, it's just not, not great for, um, for, for everybody. So I think it's reframing that, that idea uh, that wine is, is, you know, it's for everybody and it doesn't matter, you know, what others say, it's all about what you like and um and go from there and taste will change just as they do with food um but you know not being embarrassed of getting into the industry and and feeling overwhelmed i think that's like a a difficult thing in the in the wine industry yeah i definitely appreciate that but but now i'm also you made me think because as it's as it said in your bio you're also a wine judge so when there is so much subjectivity to, to what you like the most how do you go through and, and judge a competition like that? When you're there with like a panel of judges, do you often have wildly different, uh, you know, interpretations or feelings about the, the different wines? Oh yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Yeah, I um I went through that program, and to be honest, I've judged a few times, and I really don't think it's for me. You know, I have a really hard time judging uh, in those competitions because you have a few seconds basically to determine if it's you know, a bronze medal winning wine, a silver or gold. And, you know, maybe I have a cold that day. Maybe uh, I'm in a bad mood. You know, the wine is going to taste different uh, to me on a certain, in a certain time, you know, or if it's early in the morning or if it's like the last session, I'm super tired. So I've sort of stepped away from that because I also know what it takes, you know, to make uh, to make wine and to make a bottle of wine and, and how much effort and, you know, <laughs> the sweat, blood and tears that go into it. And for me to just make that snap decision on someone else's wine, it's just not something I'm super comfortable with. So sort of stepped away from that, but it's been, it was a good training, you know, program to just kind of see what are the metrics they look at for evaluating wine. But uh, yeah, to be honest, I don't think I should have the power to, <laughs> to you know, tell anybody if a wine is good or bad. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think honestly, the, the competition model is kind of fading a little bit. You know, you do have the scores seem to be the most important part uh, of that credibility aspect within the industry. So, you know, wine and spirits, wine spectator, wine enthusiast, they'll have a panel that tastes and they, you know, give you a number and then we can put that on shelf talkers and talk to consumers. But there also has been kind of a backlash to that as well, um, especially with those in the industry that say that, you know, it's like you mentioned, it's so subjective. Like I could love this wine and the person next to me hates it for who knows what reason. So yeah, it, it is a, an interesting idea when we're talking about credibility. And I think just knowing different producers and, and knowing different styles that you like is probably the best avenue to go. And then keep trying, keep trying a bunch of wines. So in the spirit of, of trying, do you have a, do you have a favorite uh, varietal that, that you is kind of your go-to? 
Yes, uh, I have many. <laughs> it sure. really depends. Um, I'm very into Riesling. I mean, Riesling is the most important, you know, grape variety that, that we make. Um, we make over 60% of our production is actually Riesling in nine different styles. So I'm a big Riesling fan and um, Riesling has always had a bit of a difficult reputation. I think that's what I also kind of like about it. It's a, kind of an underdog. You know, it has this perception of always being sweet, but it actually can be bone dry and you can make sparkling from Riesling and the sweeter styles can be really beautiful as well for dessert wines. So there is this movement in the industry, especially with sommeliers and, and restaurant professionals to really, you know, hone in on Riesling. And there's some, you know, sounds that have Riesling tattooed on their arm, like they love it so much that, so it's, it's become this kind of uh, really interesting, um, uh, really interesting kind of affection uh, to this grape variety. But I also love sparkling wine. I'm a big champagne fan, you know, Franciacorta in Italy where they produce traditional method sparkling. Uh, Cava is great. Um, so I try to kind of look outside, you know, what we do. Uh, another one of my favorite grapes is Gewürztraminer. Um, so they're great examples from Northern Italy, from Alto Adige, and actually one of my good friends from University of Adelaide has a family winery there, and um, my husband and I went last year, and it was just amazing, and that's really the Mecca. Uh, Tremine is where her family winery is, and that's where Gewürztraminer gets its name, so Gewürz is spice in German, and then Tremine is that village where her family winery is. Uh, it's called Elena Valk. It's very good. Um, but I'm a big Gewürztraminer fan. And yeah, I, I haven't met that many wines that I don't enjoy. So I am really like to explore and expand my horizons. Absolutely. I love it. And then is there anything, I don't know, because I, I'm thinking back, I actually took the wines class because I felt like I had to, but I didn't even like wine at the time. And then by the time I had gone through and tried so many different, uh, you know, kinds of wines and, and got to know what I liked. Um, I, I ended up, you know, really developing a, a passion for it. So I'm, I'm curious from, from your perspective, uh, whether it's, whether it's these alums that, that are listening that, uh, sadly didn't get a chance to take the class or, you know, just others that maybe come into the winery that aren't Cornellians. What, what's the best way to kind of get started? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a great question, Andrew. I'd say um, just tasting, you know, just going through different regions and different grape varieties. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of classes out there, but you don't necessarily have to take a class um, to really get into it. There's uh, many books, you know, Jancis Robinson is a famous wine writer. She's a master of wine. She actually wrote a book called The 24-Hour Wine Expert. That's one of my favorite books. And we hand it out to um, a lot of our new staff um, members at the winery because it just is a quick, easy read, very short book. But it, it gives you a glimpse into a lot of these terms and um, helps you become a little bit more confident when maybe going into a wine store or picking wine off of a, a wine list. So those are, I think, fun options. The other idea is wine is very much a, you know, a community uh, and to maybe just taste, you know, with a group of people and pick, you know, say 
wines of southern Italy and everyone goes and picks a bottle and I guess you know maybe doing a zoom tasting <laughs> I guess would be more appropriate now but um, but when possible you know tasting and 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 kind of understanding what you know things other people are getting what notes you're getting and comparing them and that's always a fun a fun activity yeah yeah I do enjoy that as well I, I think that doing it with other other folks and and kind of as you were mentioning earlier you know because things are so subjective it's kind of funny to see when you love something and somebody else hates it or you know whatever the case may be but it's fun nonetheless to, to go through and uh, and just try it and, and eventually you'll hone in probably on a, on a few things that you like anyways so kind of you know, coming with that that spirit of, of exploration and, and experimentation, um, which is kind of leading me into kind of the, the, the next part of what I wanted to talk with you about as that fourth generation uh, of leading this family business, where are you kind of in that in that succession process? What, what has that been like? And, and what's work? What, what's it like working with your dad? <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm sure you also have some great stories, Andrew. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been actually really smooth. Um, when I first got back uh, from Australia in 2013, it was a little bit of a challenge, just because, you know, my dad was so used to doing things his way, and it was a little bit difficult to kind of get in there and see if I could change things or you know, or help him in certain ways. But eventually we we found our little areas where, um, you know, he's very into the vineyards. So he handles all the grower liaison tasks. Um, you know, we have 140 acres of vineyards. So kind of managing the different teams with our vineyard managers. And, and that's, a, you know, a really big part of his passion. Um, whereas, you know, for me, I'm a little bit more on the business side and also the production side. So we've sort of carved out our little areas, which has been really helpful. Um, but to be honest, it's been very good. You know, he uh, remembers the experience of working with his father, which um, was very challenging for him. He used to say that, you know, his dad, he would come to him with an idea and he would say no for sport, that it would just be like, before he even heard the idea, no. And he's been very patient with me and trying not to, you know, replicate that same experience. So I, I do really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, it's been, we're, we're sort of the first pair of generations that has gotten along. <laughs> so Constantine did not get along with his son, Willie. You know, my, my dad had a tough time dealing with his father. So I feel really lucky that you know, it's been fairly smooth. The biggest part for me has been we have so many long-term staff members, which is really a great blessing. You know, people who have worked with us 30 years, 35 years, and so they, you know, have, you know, they've known me for my whole life, essentially, and, you know, overcoming that and kind of gaining their respect has um, been a challenge, but it's also been uh, really rewarding, actually. So just for me, I've like taken that lesson, that year's lesson <laughs> that I learned uh, back back at Cornell, and just you know taking that listening road and and always kind of leading with empathy. I think it's been a big part of um, you know how it has been so smooth. So yeah, it's been it's been great. 
I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, you know, it, it is such a such a blessing to be able to to work with a parent and be able to spend time with them. But uh, you know, some it, it can go either way sometimes. And yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure you still butt heads sometimes. But it, but it is nice when you kind of carve out your own niche and everything. And and that was actually as you're mentioning that that some people have been around for so long. What do you attribute that to? Because you know, I, I talk a lot in in my own. Uh, professional experience about, you know, how you build corporate culture and get people to be really engaged and, and really, you know, stick around for a long time and some, some of the benefits of that. Um, I'm sure the wine doesn't hurt, but there's got to be something beyond that, uh, you know, the culture that you're creating. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's exactly one thing, but I think what you kind of mentioned, it's sort of a multitude of factors. Um, you know, when my when my father took over, he really put a lot of emphasis on benefits. And I think that's helped uh, greatly because there's not that many employers in the region. So to really take care of our employees, you know, from a healthcare standpoint um, has been really great. And then other, you know, fringe benefits, but also giving employees um, a bit of space to also experiment themselves and, you know, to step back and, and not micromanage, to really, uh, to let team members just feel that ownership. And I think that's probably been the biggest factor in, in our employee retention. And it's really in key positions. So like our winemaker has been, this is his 31st harvest. He's originally from California. Uh, our retail sales manager has been here 29 years. Um, our vineyard manager over 35 years. So just really phenomenal team members that, um, you know, they have all of this experience and this passion and it's, it's just really great to, you know, learn from them. Love that. Speaking my language for sure. Yeah. Trying to, trying to unlock some of their own passions and, and give them a sense of ownership and, and treating them well too. You know, I, I think those things mean so much and I call it discretionary effort. You know, if people don't care about the work that they're doing or they don't like their boss or the people that they're working with, they'll do the bare minimum to just get by and, you know, not, not get in trouble. But there's so much more that they're willing and, and eager to give when they feel connected to the organization. They feel like they're cared for. So glad to see that that, uh, that conscious capitalism type of ethos pervades, uh, pervades Dr. Frank Winery. Um, now I'm sure, despite all of those all of those wonderful things, there's been a, a little bit of a of a wrench thrown in operations during COVID. Um, you know, we were joking before we got started that you know, in a lot of ways, it's probably been good for business. A lot of people are are buying and drinking wine, which is great. But but what have been some of the ways that you've had to adapt and evolve in these times? Yes, it's certainly a wrench is a very good metaphor. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was very challenging. Um, we closed to the public in March and um, I was really worried that, you know, we were going to have to close our whole company. Uh, but luckily we were an essential business. You know, wine is essential, I guess, in stressful times. Um, but because we're an agricultural business, we were essential. So that was really a blessing because we were able to continue operations in the vineyard, in the in the cellar, continue bottling. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been challenging. We kind of segregated different departments. I think the hardest thing has been, you know, our staff in production, our staff in the vineyards, and in our retail operation haven't really been able to kind of get together. And there's of course friendships throughout the company and. 
So that has been, you know, quite challenging. And it's something we're continuing, you know, today too, to just really separate the departments and make sure, you know, everyone kind of stays within their building. And so, um, yeah, we did a few like fun things. Like we organized a, a step challenge with the, the company who've never done that before. So we had uh, gift cards for local restaurants for takeout as the, the winners. And it was a two week thing and it was just super fun. Uh, we did a concert, an outdoor concert when we closed with just the, the staff um, with one of our team members plays the guitar and sings and it was just everyone outside in the parking lot, you know, spread out and like little things like that has been really helpful to kind of feel connected in this difficult time. Um, but otherwise, you know, we've been doing well. We're, you know, continuing uh, retail operations today. We actually opened up back in June. So we reinvented our tasting experience. So we're doing a progressive tasting, which before it was, you would, you know, be welcomed. You would uh, be able to pick uh, a few selections from 40 different wines that we make. And we've really rethought that out because it's not really possible, you know, for us to have a tasting in that traditional way. So basically there's tasting stations throughout the property and you pass through the first station is sparkling. So you spend, you know, five to seven minutes talking about sparkling wines, tasting sparkling. You move to history, you then go to vineyards, then winemaking. And then we finish with our Helm series, which is a line of wines that pays tribute to the women of my family who have helped build the business. So that's been a really fun uh, tasting. And I actually, I think we might keep it moving forward. So kind of a silver lining of 2020, but it was a way for us to kind of control the flow of people. So it's a one-way flow of movement and also no, you know, groups ever kind of connecting. So it's just one group that passes through the tasting at a time. So we're just trying to figure out what to do when it, you know, the temperature drops and we have a lot of the stations outside. So we're going to have to reinvent it again <laughs> but I, I think that we'll be okay we just have to put our heads together but uh so then yeah honestly it has been kind of good to rethink what we're doing and and our check values up you know for this experience we're welcoming about one third of the people through um but the check value has uh doubled so that's telling us that you know the reservation system that, um, you know, the contactless pickup where you basically tell the cashier through a window what you'd like, and then you can pick it up where your car is parked. You know, that way people aren't actually lifting heavy bottles. And we did it, you know, because we didn't want people picking up bottles and touching things. But actually, it's been great because it's that kind of Amazon effect where you say, I'd like two of this, three of that, four of these, and you pick it up, you know, outside near your car. So. There's definitely a few things that we're gonna keep, uh, which is which is exciting. Yeah, I was I was thinking, uh, you know, making making lemons out of lemonade, but that's probably a terrible pun one when you're really uh, <laughs> really making wine out of grapes. But um, you know, gosh, it, it it is really neat to see you know the agility of a business like that, and, and great to see that you're able to you know make the most of of that situation. And now you're incentivizing me to make a make a drive down I, I i feel like it's been too long since i've been down for a tasting so that sounds great and, and hopefully once reunions and homecomings become a thing again the listeners can can stop by as well 
Um, anything else though, as we're kind of looking beyond hopefully uh, whatever, whatever COVID has in store for us, kind of as you're looking into the future, maybe five or 10 years, what, what kinds of things do you see for, uh, for the family business and for the winery for the future? Yeah. Well, first of all, we'd love to have you, Andrew. Just let me know whenever you'd like to come. Take you up and, on uh, that. Watch out. <laughs> great. Yeah. And any Cornellians, if you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Um, you know, we're, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to visit. Obviously, everyone knows that because <laughs> we're so close to Ithaca. Um, but yeah, I would say the region is sort of exploding with potential. You know, the Finger Lakes, I think everyone can be proud that they went to school in now a world-renowned wine region. You know, the Finger Lakes has come a really long way. And, you know, our family business has been doing this for 60 years and it's taken a lot of time to kind of promote quality wines and, and really figure out, you know, uh, the different varieties that work the best. But I think, you know, we're, our region is being written up in, you know, fantastic publications and being judged with, you know, the best wines of the world. So it really is, is an exciting thing to see. And it's happened very quickly, honestly. You know, my grandfather used to say he couldn't even give away Finger Lakes Riesling on the streets of Manhattan, you know. He called it missionary work. Like he would go to these different states and just try to talk about Finger Lakes. And, you know, so many people didn't even know we were making wine. So, um, you know, whereas today you have Manhattan, you know, uh, sommeliers and restaurant owners calling up and saying they have a whole category Finger Lakes on their list. Like this is just phenomenal. So I'd say that there's a really bright, bright future for our region. And um, right now, you know, it's, pretty much all family-owned businesses, family farms. We have had very little outside investment. So that's probably going to be the next frontier for some companies to come in, you know, whether they you know, come from Champagne or Germany or wherever and invest in the region because we have a cool climate. We have, you know, inexpensive land, uh, as it were, in comparison to, to other regions. And um, those, you know, the moderating effect of the lakes is really what helps us, you know, produce wine of, of really high quality. So, yeah, I think we're going to see even more of an explosion in the future. And, um, you know, Riesling is, I think, for a long time going to remain our signature variety, but sparkling wines are kind of coming up on the scene. Traditional method sparkling is a really big deal. And um, we have all the necessary ingredients, if you will, um, with our cool climate and uh, our, our soils here. So I think we're going to start to see many, many more of those as well. So very exciting times. Nice. Yeah, I haven't gotten into sparkling as much, but it sounds like a, a research opportunity for me. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And sparkling is not just for celebrations. It's for every day. You know, it's one of the most food friendly uh, pairing wines that you can that you can go for uh, as a category. Well, as you're mentioning, uh, you know, I was just doing a little research before, uh, you know, before this interview. And not only is this a becoming a more and more prominent wine region, but uh, you know, you were named one of the top 100 wineries in the world by Wine and Spirits magazine. Uh, also, top 11 wineries by Men's Journal. So, you know, not only is the is the region really starting to to lead more and more, but both historically and, and now into the present, uh, continuing to lead at Dr. Frank and, 
and looks like they're in good hands for the future. So thanks so much for joining us today, Megan. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you at the winery. All right. You count on it. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. Music from Fresh from the Hill was created by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. To learn more about the Young Alumni programs and how to stay connected to Cornell, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni. See you next time.